stream or here with us in person. We looked last week at the sufficiency of Scripture is what gives us the most comfort and security as believers. Uh, today we're going to continue on and we're going to see a separate occasion in which the Word of God speaks, which is fascinating to me in my mind, that the Word of God not only would speak from a distance, but would get up close and personal with the very ones that He has created, and yet they do not receive Him. We saw in John chapter 1 last week, the light was coming into the world, and the, and the world did not receive Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. It's a statement far beyond ethnic Judaism, even though salvation comes from the Jews, which is what we'll see here in just a moment. But he came into his own creation, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of personal experience. He came into his own. He came, all of creation testifies to the glory of a creator. But his own creation, his most prized possession, the thing that is greater than even the stars in the sky. Do not worship him. We do not worship him the way that we ought to. And I think a lot of it as believers, as born-again Christians, a lot of that has to do directly with how we view Scripture. The title of this message this morning, kind of a, a jump off, a, a launching point from last week, um, is beholding the Word of God again. Beholding the Word of God the sufficiency of Scripture gives the believer, believer satisfaction in this life. The satisfaction of the believer is the sufficiency of Scripture. Let us read in John chapter 4, verse 1. When we finish, we will pray for God's Spirit to illuminate our minds and help us to see all that we can through this text. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob that he had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, 
Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have to come back here to, the, to, to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father God, please remove distractions, remove personal opinions, or remove anything at this moment that would cause us to hinder, that would hinder us from hearing your word the way that it is meant to be heard. To hear your truth and for that truth to, to set us free. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us illumination. Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds to see the things that you have in store for your word? That we may not be like Nicodemus and be so religious and so spiritual that we are so blind I pray that you would guide us through your word because your word is sufficient. There's nothing that I have to say on, on my own behalf that will have any power, that will have any value or any ability to do anything within the people that I'm speaking to right now. But that we as a church body would be able to hear your words and affirm in our hearts, in our lives, and how we live that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, and that you've given us all we need in your scriptures to love, obey, and to worship you. So let us do it in the true way that you have described and demand. We pray this in no other name than in the name of the Son, through whom we are able to have a relationship with you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The sufficiency of Scripture is something that is very controversial. Not just in the Protestant 
faith, not just in the Protestant Christianity divisions and denominations, but across the world, across all worldviews. To uphold to the, the, the phrase sola scriptura, that scripture is all that is necessary and is the final authority of God here on earth, is constantly under attack. Has been under attack ever since Adam and Eve did not truly think that God's words were enough. There had to have been more. There had to have been a way for them to be able to enjoy all that they wanted in addition to God's command, his spoken command, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There were other words that were given, to, there were other commands given to Adam and Eve in the garden. That was not the only command that God had given to not eat of the garden. He commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. He commanded them to subdue and take care of the earth. So it is not uncommon for us as fallen individuals to stray outside of Scripture alone and want more. Because surely, my worldview and how I perceive things in the world around me is on the same level as Scripture's authority. Surely, my politics, surely, my morals, surely, my education is right up there with how Scripture presents to us who God is and how we are supposed to live. We're on the same level. The cry of sola scriptura came out of a time and a period in which it was, there were some differences, but human nature was still the same. Our thoughts, our politics, our ideas, our morals, our education, they are not on the same level as Scripture. Scripture stands alone. It is in its own category as the final authority for us here on earth. In the 16th century, Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were the, the figureheads and the, the, the people who were the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, although there were others, um, even predecessors in the 15th century, um, if you've heard the name William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, these were people who had gone before and said that there, there's something wrong with, this, with the, the status quo of humanity, thinking that only our opinions matter. We just need to find Scripture to back it up. The thing that was so important to the reformers, to the people like Martin Luther, Scripture and the truth of Scripture was tied up in an unknowable language. It was reserved solely for the religious elite, those who were a part of and members of the Roman Catholic Empire. And it was more of an empire than it was a holy church. It had become so corrupt, it had become so man-centered their traditions, selling indulgences, giving people the, the false assurance that if you just pay a little bit of money, your dead loved ones will spend less time in purgatory. And if you pay enough money, they'll even get out of purgatory and make it into heaven. Fast forward to today, 21st century, prosperity preachers who claim that you are in the wrong when bad things are going on in your life. But if you sow a seed of money, if you sow a seed of faith, God will bless you. And if he doesn't, if your season of life becomes more difficult or it does not change, it's because you didn't have enough faith, you need to sow another seed of money. It's the same corruption. Luther was a monk 
in the Catholic, in the Roman Catholic Empire. He was convicted by his own sin. He saw within himself the wretchedness of his soul. And he was so conflicted because when he became a monk, he began to read, he began to study, he began to see the truth of Scripture and how all of his presuppositions of who God was and what it meant to, to follow him and what kind of person God was through the Roman Catholic elite did not match up with what he was reading in the Scriptures. That who are we to say at any point that we deserve anything from God? How can we say that it is not just the finished work of Christ on the cross, but it is these other things, taking communion, other practices that allow us to be able to work our way into heaven? He hated God. He hated the God of the Bible because of what was taught to him and because of the traditions that were passed down because he did not understand how could a God be like this. It was not until he was able to go to the scriptures himself that he was confronted not only with who God was truly, but also with who he was truly. And the reconciliation between those two things is vital for every person. R.C. Sproul um, once said that of, of Luther's generation, and it's very similar to ours, everyone back then had an opinion about the Bible, even though no one actually ever read it. They did not read it because it was not accessible. It was, you, you had to go through education. You had to be of a certain social class. You had to dedicate your entire life, not to Christ, but to the Roman Catholic Church. So no one, no common person, no everyday person could hear the truth of Scripture for themselves. They had to depend on what others said to them. Today, we don't read the Scriptures, and we don't truly uphold the sufficiency of Scripture because it's too accessible. The smartphone and the access to the Internet has provided us with so many great things, so many great resources. But when it comes to our true sinful nature, we use it as a way of saying, if I don't like what's being preached on this Sunday, I'm going to go somewhere else, I'm going to find that. Authority has been virtually thrown out across all generations in, in, in today's day and age because I can find anyone who, says, who claims to be an authority on a certain subject so long as it matches what my worldview already upholds. Again, Human nature has not changed. Our condition is no different. Luther was not a perfect man. A lot of things that Luther believed and upheld would not be things that anyone, any true Bible-believing Christian would say, yeah, he was a great example of Christian love, Christ-likeness. He had his flaws. Similar to what it says in James chapter 5 about Elisha. Elisha was a man with a nature like ours. The greatest among us are still like us. Fallen creatures with their sins. But Luther and the others fought against Catholic traditions and false authorities. More importantly, they fought for Scripture to be accessible for all people as in, in order to unleash God's ultimate authority 
in the life of the everyday person. In doing so, people would be able to see for themselves the truth of who Christ was and trust in his finished work on the cross as the payment and the answer for sin. Scripture and Scripture alone, nothing else. Scripture alone is the final authority of God for life on earth. It is the ordained means of God by which we truly live, obey, and worship God the way that He describes and He demands and deserves. And it's through the guidance and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we are able to see what Scripture is all about, and it's Christ. Sola Scriptura is attacked in many places because they believe, people believe that there is no sufficient evidence in Scripture for the idea that Scripture is sufficient. Please do not fall for the excuse that because Scripture is silent on certain things, therefore that is a good argument to discredit it. Because if that is the case, many things that the Scriptures do not specifically address should be allowed or should be worthy of being fought over and losing your testimony, whether or not to wear a mask in, in common society. It does not address that specifically. Nowhere in Scripture will you say, wear a mask. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, take the vaccine. Because Scripture wasn't meant for that. It was meant for something much more. It was meant to show us what it means to truly understand who God is and to see Him clearly so that we might live faithfully according to God, that we might love one another rightly. John 17, 17, I believe, is one of the monuments of Sola Scriptura. You can go to other places like Psalm 19, we read last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16, about all Scripture being God-breathed, 1 Peter chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry, about the, the, the the writers of Scripture being carried along by the Spirit, but I, I truly do believe that John 17, 17 is one of the greatest pictures and ex explanations of Scripture alone is sufficient. In John 17, we see, a, we see Christ before He is crucified in the garden, before He's handed over to the Romans, He's praying for his believers. He's praying for his disciples, for his friends. He spends the first part of chapter 17 praying for those who are there with him in that, in that day and age directly, his, his closest followers. The rest of John chapter 17, he's praying for us. Believers who trust in Christ because of the work and because of the word that is spread throughout the world of who Jesus is and his finished work on the cross. And in John 17, 17, Christ says to God, his heavenly Father, sanctify them, sanctify us, set us apart, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Not your traditions. Not, not sermons. Don't get me wrong. Traditions have their place. 
Sermons have their place. Teaching resources have their place, but that is not the final authority. Every teaching, everything that you've ever been taught, if it does not align with the Word of God, needs to be thrown out. There are truths that can be understood outside of Scripture, but they must be completely and totally done away with if they malign or are disconnected from the text itself. Only when they are brought into proper perspective of Scripture do we affirm those things. The Berean believers in Acts 17, they knew that. They tested all things by the Scriptures. Whatever was said, whatever was observed, whatever was experienced, they went to the source. They went to the authority, and that's where they found, that's where they were able to examine what is real and what isn't. The truth of God's word in John chapter 4 is sitting in front of a woman. John chapter 3, we saw last week, we encountered a man named Nicodemus, a moral, well-respected Jewish religious leader, very well-educated. Still blind. No amount of tradition or Old Testament education was able to connect for him in his own mind who Christ was, and he was sitting right in front of him. John chapter 4, we see a polar opposite encounter. An unnamed Samaritan woman who is not a moral example in the community. It's interesting We'll make the connection. John has made the connection for us already in John 4, uh, down in verse 9, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you've been in church much, um, you, you've heard that Samaritans were a mixture as the result of interracial and interethnic religious marriage. Jews did not have anything really good to say especially religious elite Jews like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had, had nothing good to say about Samaritans. In fact, one of the biggest slanders that they, they spoke against Christ in John chapter 8 was you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Samaritans were not people to the Pharisees. Samaritans were subpar creations, creatures, if you could even call them that. In fact, in, in one commentary, it says that Pharisees are documented having prayed that the, the Samaritan believers would not be raised in the resurrection. Steeped in tradition and steeped in what they believed was the right interpretation of God's law, they looked down upon Samaritans. Half-breeds, immoral, That's why the story of the Good Samaritan was such, such an offense to the Jews, especially to the Jewish, the Jewish leaders. That a Samaritan, of all people, the only, the only modern day equivalent I could think of would be a leader of ISIS, a leader of radical Islam. And even that doesn't do it justice. They were hated. 
And there was mutual hatred towards one another because of the interracial, because of the, the bleeding over of God's commands. In fact, the Pharisees and the Jewish people believed that the, the Samaritans were so far gone because of their disobedience to God's word. They had their own, they developed their own uh, law. The same way the Jews have the first five books of the Bible, they developed their own. They set up their own temple, their own altar on a different mountain in order to, to worship in a way that they thought was, was right. That's why when, when they say, when the woman says, have you not come to, this, to the well where Jacob, our father, are you greater than our father Jacob who has drunk from this well himself? That was considered slander for a Samaritan to tie their religious heritage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If there's there are many things that you did not want to put yourself on the same level of in Jewish culture. And one of them was the forefathers. You do not put yourself on the same level as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting when Jesus encounters the Pharisees in John chapter 8, though. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am greater. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, it mentions those three men specifically, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By faith, they died. Faith in what? In Christ. Faith in the promised word of God fulfilled in Christ. Back in verse 1 of John chapter 4, it's not until Jesus hears that the Pharisees were trying to incite some kind of division and competition between John the Baptist and Jesus that he left. And it's interesting. John wants us to know that it was not Jesus himself that was baptizing, it was his disciples. So there's some clarification there from the, from the, from the, the writer to his Gentile readers. But when he left Judea to go to Galilee, in verse 4 it says he had to go through some go through Samaria. It was the shortest route. But any well-respected and well-educated Jewish person, whether it was from institutional education through the Pharisees, or whether it was just through oral tradition of being taught homeschooling, Jewish homeschooling, whatever it may be, a good Jew did not go through Samaria. You take the long way if you have to. You, you go around that area. You go down the coast. Go across the Jordan. Up to, an, up to another city. But when it says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, it was a divine necessity. The word used there in the Greek is tied to other things of divine necessity. When it says in John chapter 3, you must be born again, same word. It is divinely necessary for you to be born again of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Here, it was divinely necessary for Christ to go through Samaria. Why? Because through his witness and through his sharing of himself with this woman, it leads an entire, Samar not an entire, but a large majority of a Samaritan village to faith in God. Through this unnamed, immoral, uneducated Samaritan woman. Doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter who you are, where you line up on the left side or the right side. I heard a song just recently that says, there is no left or right side of heaven. So let that comfort you in this political season. But he went to the town of Samaria, 
a place called Sychar. And here he meets this woman. And he's the one who initiates the conversation. Remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus. Here, Jesus seeks this woman out. He knows where she is. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, so there was a little bit of dealing with Samaritans. They maybe, not, maybe didn't like it. They probably stayed there as long as they could. They maybe held their breath all the way into town and held their breath all the way out. Who knows? But for his Gentile readers, John wants them to make sure they understand this was not supposed to be the way it was supposed to happen. Culturally, traditionally, this was wrong. But praise be to God that Christ is greater than human obstacles. Because when the Samaritan woman hears this, it's interesting, she makes five, she has five realizations of, who, of, of Jesus himself that kind of build on one another, leading ultimately to her understanding and recognition of who Jesus is and leads her to saving faith. The first recognition that she makes was that, she, that Jesus was a Jew. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? It was the sixth hour. Jewish day started at 6 a.m. It was noon by this time. It was hot. This is not a time when people just enjoy being out in the hot Israel sun, much like Oklahoma heat in the summertime. I spend as little time outside in the summer heat of Oklahoma as I possibly can. This was a time, the sixth hour was a time for travelers to come in and to rest and to, to drink and to, to replenish whatever food or whatever supplies they needed. It was uncommon for the women of the town to go out at such a, such a hot time of the day. They would wait either early morning or more regularly, probably late at night, to where they could have it left over and ready for the travelers the next day. But this woman... She's not a respected figure. She goes out in the heat of the day. She's not someone that is upheld as a person that you would want to be friends with. In fact, it's very clear she has no friends. She's not with the other women. She's not with the other servants, servers, not servants, servers in the community. She's by herself. And she says, Jesus, you're a Jew. Sir, how, how are you a Jew asking for me a drink? A woman from Samaria. And Jesus, just like he did with Nicodemus, he cuts straight to the heart of what she's, what she's needing most. If you knew the gift of God, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But just like Nicodemus, she is so fixated on the physical the material. She can't get past. She cannot. She has not had the religious education. But even her realizations about Jesus and the characteristics that she sees in Jesus are far beyond the most religious leader and teacher of Israel back in John chapter 3. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she recognizes that he's a Jew, and she recognizes that there's something about this guy that's greater than Jacob, our forefather. He gave us this well. He drank of it himself. Jesus says in verse 13, of this water you will be thirsty again. It cannot satisfy you. 
It cannot give you that which your soul is longing for the most, and you don't even realize it. Everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It will become within them a well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not for the effects of righteousness. Not for the result of righteousness. That's what the Pharisees and that's what the Roman Catholic Church back in the 16th century were all about. I want the effects of righteousness. I want the power of righteousness. I want what righteousness can do for me now. Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness itself, we need to interpret Scripture also in light of what the rest of Scripture says. There is no righteousness that we can attain ourselves. It has to come through Jesus. It has to come through being born again. Everyone who hungers and thirsts for Christ and seeks Him through His Word, the last part of that beatitude of that blessed is that you will be satisfied. Nothing satisfies on earth like Christ. And we find that through His Word. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. And the, the third realization, somehow he has access to this water. Not only is he greater than Jacob, not only is he a Jew, he has access to this water, but she's still so caught up and still so confused. There's progress being made, but she says, how can I have this water so that I can't, so I don't have to come back here and draw again? Jesus asks a very specific question that causes her to feel very convicted. Go get your husband. One person that I read, this is the shortest exchange that she has with Jesus. I have no husband. She'd much rather talk about the religious and spiritual effects of Jacob's well, but in the, when it got down to her morality, I'm, I'm uncomfortable now. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five. And the one that you have now is not your husband. Involved in an immoral relationship. And what you said is, is true. And Christ patiently, lovingly, continues to converse with her. The word of God continues to talk. The woman says, next to the fourth realization, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She knows that he must be more than just a teacher. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This was the place where the, the Samaritans had set up their own temple, had set up their own, their own ideas of Scripture, their own ideas of worshipping God. And she says, on this mountain is where we worshipped. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Neither Gentile nor Jew can worship. The only way that we worship, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Truth transcends generations transcends ethnicities, transcends human obstacles. God is spirit. There is no division. There is no separation. 
in God. Galatians tells us that in Christ, there is, there is no slave or free. There is no master and servant. There's no Jew or Gentile. For we are one with Christ. For in him we are united. And we must, it is divinely necessary for us to worship God the right way and is according to spirit and to truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. I don't know how she knows this. Because based on the material that we've been given, maybe she's heard it before. Maybe there's been a, a thread of Messiahship been taught and passed down through her family line. Maybe it goes back to, ja to Jacob. She says, I know the, the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, the anointed one, the anointed redeemer and rescuer of God's people. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can go read the rest of the story. She is so overcome with joy with understanding, with truth, that she runs back to her village and tells everybody, come, come meet a man who knew everything about me. Scars and all. And yet still wanted to know me more. And was willing to give me living water. John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's spoken testimony. He told me all that I ever did. He still wanted me. Has nothing to do with her. Has nothing to do with her desiring to, to, to do better. To believe more. It was about Christ. Come meet him who told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Christ, they asked him to stay with them a few more days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves. And we know. We have heard the truth for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture rules over all authority. Any other authority that tries to present itself as such is wrong. Scripture rules over all authority. It rules over all reality. It rules over morality. It rules over your identity. No one ever gets to decide for themselves who they are. That is determined for us. It has to come from outside of us. We don't get to determine how we are to live this life. We don't get to determine who we are. We don't get to determine what happens after our life is over. Our life is here and gone in a second. And yet we are so much like Nicodemus and like this woman. 
so fixated on the physical, thinking we have all this time, when in comparison to eternity, it is a vapor. Christ used exactly what each person needed. For Nicodemus, it was the, the, the illustration of being born again. For this woman, is the illustration of drinking living water. He meets us exactly where we are. So how is the sufficiency of Scripture the satisfaction of believers? Through Scripture, we can know God intimately. Not from a distance. We can come into His presence, sit at His feet. David says in Psalm 27, one thing have I asked, and it's the only thing I want in life, and it's to be in the presence of God. To enjoy Him and to look upon His face. We can also see ourselves clearly who we truly are. This woman was so tied up and so locked up in all of her ideas and her her opinions about herself and her culture. She had no identity until Christ came. The same is true for us. We see ourselves clearly. Through Scripture, we can confess sin sincerely. Scripture sharper than two, any two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 is able to divide joint from marrow to discern the, heart, the, discern the thoughts and the motives of the heart. The reason I think sometimes we do not go to Scripture first and foremost and see it as sufficient is because we know what it's going to point out in us. We do not like our reflection. And Scripture is a mirror. It's better to live in the darkness. It's easier to live in the darkness. People feel more comfortable when you don't try to shine the light. And that's the 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt be nice. But we can confess sin sincerely. We can love others genuinely. A genuine love that is not born out of selfish motive. But out of a sacrificial love, we can proclaim God truthfully, We can worship God faithfully according to what He has said. We ought not ever think about what is most important to me when it comes to worship, not just in a a sermon or a music setting like this as we gather together, but in our everyday life, 24-7 outside of these walls, the 168 hours that exist outside of these walls. We can worship God faithfully according to what He has said and how He has said we are to worship Him. We are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We can drink deeply of His grace, His mercy, and of His love because Scripture is sufficient to tell us how to do so. And because it's through the Scriptures that we understand that the wrath of God toward our sin is satisfied fully in the death of Christ on the cross and that He has defeated death, hell, and the grave, fulfilling the Scriptures entirely, may our souls receive satisfaction. John Piper, a person that I encourage you to, to listen to and to, to hear his, his preaching and his sermons, not in replacement of Pastor Greg's, but in addition. He says that God is most glorified in fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity. God is most glorified. He receives the most glory that he deserves when we, as his born-again children, are most satisfied in him and in nothing else.
Where do we go to understand this satisfaction? Where do we go to understand how we are to live and worship and obey him? To the place that he has already given to us. Anything outside of scripture, if it does not align with scripture, toss it out. The cry of the Reformation and the cry of scripture, because that's where it comes from. Anything that Luther says, anything that Calvin says, anything that any of the other reformers have to say, Knox, Wycliffe, whoever it may be, must be upheld and must be examined according to Scripture. Because salvation for sinful humanity is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And we must examine ourselves against Scripture and nothing else. And the beauty of it is, Christ says, I will give you this living water. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to, you, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us who you are in your word. Thank you for speaking so clearly to us. I pray that there be no confusion. I pray that there be no misunderstanding about who you are, about what your word has said, but that you may receive the the glory you so rightly deserve. It is much easier to stand and proclaim these things and much more difficult to allow the sufficiency of Scripture and all that is entailed in that to be put into practice. But Lord, may we start, may we start with getting into Scripture, trust it, affirm it in life and in our faith to know, Lord, that you haven't, you haven't given us You've given us, sorry, you've given us plenty of understanding of who you are. We might live in faith and obedience to you through your word. And may we start there by developing a stronger hunger and love for your word. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.